up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 56, Isaiah chapter 56. Tonight's uh, subject or title is Salvation for All People. Salvation for All People. Chapter 56 contains a prophecy about the Gentiles' conversion and their admittance into the church and of the corrupt state of the church after they entered into it, especially the corruption of its leaders, which brought in men to the church comparable to wild beasts to devour it, as Paul spoke about in, in Ephesians. This chapter is about revival. A lot of Christians really don't understand what revival is. And I would remember at times in years past, I see a church and it would have a banner, you know, draped across the front of it. And it would say revival. And it would maybe give with uh, evangelist, pastor so-and-so. Now, what does revival mean in the Bible? Because we just can't schedule revivals and say, okay, we're going to have a revival this week. Revival means it means a spiritual awakening from a state of not showing signs of existing or activity in the life of a believer. It includes the resurfacing of a love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for His Word and His church, and a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. And under all of these conditions, then we're going to have a revival. Like I said, revivals just can't be scheduled. True revival is when the Holy Spirit just pours himself out over a church under the above mentioned conditions. The Holy Spirit goes where he wants to go. He does what he wants to do. He goes where he, he you know, wherever, you know, again, he... He's to go. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Jesus said you can hear the wind. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. Israel had gone into captivity because she had disobeyed God's law, specifically the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. This commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy was a special sign between God and the Jews. It was never given to the Gentiles. And the Jews were rebuked for the careless way that they treated the Sabbath day during their wilderness wanderings and when they lived in the land. Even after they returned to the Holy Land, after their captivity, the Jews continued to violate the Sabbath. They weren't keeping it. Now keep in mind, the Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week. The day that God sanctified <clears throat> when he finished creation. Sunday is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and it comm commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So to call Sunday the Sabbath or the Christian Sabbath is to confuse these two important days. The Sabbath was a sign to the Jews and belongs to the law. You work for six days and then you rest. The Lord's Day speaks of resurrection and belongs to grace. God's people trust in Christ 
and then the work follows. So God never <clears throat> before asked the Gentiles to join the Jews in keeping the Sabbath. But here he does. He calls the same people that he prohibited from entering into his covenant, entering his covenant nation, he called them foreigners and eunuchs. They were prohibited from entering his covenant nation. This is, though, another picture of God's grace. The invitation is still, like we saw in chapter 55, everyone come. And you know what? It applies to sinners today. But it will apply in a special way when Israel enters her kingdom. The temple services are restored, and when the Sabbath is once again a part of Jewish worship. Let's begin now in chapter 56 with verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Those, have, those who have been greatly blessed by the Lord, we have an obligation to faithfully do His will. And in the Old Testament system of things, this would be done by keeping the law and observing the Sabbath. But God's counsel to the remnant here to keep justice and do righteousness wasn't obeyed. When you read Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Malachi, you see that the Jews soon forgot God's goodness and they went back to their old ways. And that's what always happens. Taking special time each week to remember the Lord and worship Him, <clears throat> it helps us to obey His will. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this. That is what he said in verse 1, to keep justice and do righteousness. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So Isaiah says, the man who keeps justice and does righteousness and continues to do them is the one who's blessed or happy. The first of these duties is keeping the Sabbath and not defiling it. And by keeping the Sabbath, you're showing your true religion. Because keeping it amounts to a, a, a consistent remembrance and recognition of the truth along with a constant profession of the faith. Faithfulness. The weekly observance of the Sabbath was the same as saying or admitting that the God of Israel was truly the creator of heaven and earth and that he delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt and has set them apart to himself as a peculiar people, a peculiar nation. The person who sincerely and actually observed the Sabbath was truly devoted to the religion of Israel. Because next to circumcision, the Sabbath was the main sign of the covenant. Observing the Sabbath is to observe everything that God has prescribed. And by observing the Sabbath every week, it would help to remind them of everything that God had done for his people and everything that was involved in their relationship with them. From the sound of the last few words of verse 2, it seems that just a form of religious service wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough to go, to go through the motions. You see, a man has to keep, or a woman, a man has to keep the Sabbath faithfully and not defile it. And it has to do, it says here, to keep his hands from doing any evil. What God requires is total devotion, not the appearance of any evil. 
Do you make, do we make Sunday a special day? Sunday has become, for many, a fun day for all kinds of non-spiritual activities. Not, and, and, and not, they're not speak legal, speaking legalism here, but heart devotion. Look at verses 3 through 5. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name even better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off or shall not be forgotten. Foreigners and eunuchs and others weren't allowed to worship. They weren't even considered citizens. Because foreigners were pagan and eunuchs mutilated themselves. Making themselves eunuchs. Disfiguring their bodies. The bodies that God had created. No physical handicap or weakness will shut them out of the kingdom of God. And that's what God's saying in verses 3 through 5. Notice again, he says in verse 3, he says, don't let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord. He says, don't let that person who is a foreigner who has come to the Lord. He says, don't let them say that the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Don't let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree that is one who can't bear children. He says, he says, no physical handicap, nothing, no weakness, nothing that you were before you came will shut you out of my kingdom. But that wasn't God's word to us. His last word is openness and welcome for anyone whose faith comes to rest in Jesus Christ. Whatever race, whatever social position, whatever work or financial situation, God's blessings are as much for you as for anyone else. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 No one should exclude in any way those whom God chooses to bless. Any kind of prejudice is sin and it should be rejected by Christians, especially Christians. So don't tell yourself or let the devil tell you that God won't take you or that God can't use you for whatever reason. Maybe you don't have a, a, a church upbringing, which might be a good thing. Or maybe you feel like the church will fall down if you walk through the doors or you feel uncomfortable or you've disfigured yourself in one way or another, or whatever the reason might be, and you'd rather not talk about it, understand that God wants you to know this. The only thing that matters to God is that you rest in Jesus Christ, and you choose to do what pleases Him and hold fast to Him, that is, abide in Him. If Jesus has your heart, God says He'll give you a place in His kingdom and His family. Even better than sons and daughters born there who don't treat Christ as their everything. To God, you know, being an insider, it has no guarantees. And if you're an outsider, it's not a problem with God. More than anything else, God values a heart for Jesus. That means a heart for Jesus 
is a heart that loves the Lord, obeys the Lord, and commits firmly to the Lord. You see, that's how he defines true spirituality. The Jews of old needed to understand that. We need to understand it as well. We draw, we draw lines of separation. We draw lines where we think that God won't use me or want me or anything like that. God wants to erase those lines. Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Whatever that might be. God throws the door wide open to anyone and everyone who will take Jesus Christ alone as their authority. Verses 6 and 7. He says, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will speak. I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer and their, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The foreigner here or the stranger who has joined himself to the Lord is because he wants to serve the Lord. The word applies to the service of priest and Levite, showing that the foreigners will serve the Lord just like his regularly appointed servants do. And to love the Lord's name means to love him as one's own personal God as he has expressed himself, shown it in all of his works and all of his ways. The foreigners will be servants who serve him in love. And they are further recognized, as it says in verse 6, as keeping the Sabbath and holding fast the covenant that God made with them. Hypocrisy is excluded, and those who serve have to love God. In verse 7, Jesus quoted this verse when he drove out the money changers from the temple in Mark chapter 11, verse 17. You know, where he said God would make this house a house of prayer. It was God's original intention that the temple was to be for all peoples. Their race, their tongue, their class, their condition did not matter, and it still doesn't matter today. But God's house had stopped being a house of prayer a long time, for a long time, in Christ's day. The church today is also just as far away from its main purpose as the temple, being a house of prayer. You know, a lot of churches have become a social gathering. Somebody said, without committed people, you have no church, just a social gathering. There are some who are bringing the lost to the Lord. Adrian Rogers says, if a church is not supernatural, it's superficial. The first part of verse 7 suggests that the foreigners God has been talking about are far away. Not from the city of Jerusalem and the temple but from the household of faith and that God himself has to bring them to his holy mountain and he caused them to rejoice in his house of prayer. God brings the foreigners into the household of faith. And when they're there, he causes them to rejoice. And the worship of the eunuchs and the foreigners who were once, you know, prohibited from, from being in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the house of God, they're going to be accepted. Because they're going to worship God like his own people from Israel do. 
And this worship is described in the Old Testament wording, specifically by the offering of sacrifices. All legitimate sacrifices of Israel, the prescribed worship of the Lord, will be acceptable as a pleasing offering on God's altar, Isaiah says. And then the last sentence of verse 7 gives the reason, specifically that God's house of prayer is for all people. The prophecy has to do with the future. At the time here that Isaiah is speaking, it's not yet a house of prayer for all the people. But this is what it will become when God brings the eunuchs and the foreigners into his kingdom. In the old system of the Lord, it was worshipped by one nation in the temple. But you see, when his glorious future kingdom comes, all barriers and lines of separation are going to be removed. And all people, nations and tongues will serve him. The emphasis on prayer shows that the holiness of the temple consists of prayers continually being offered there. This is here the beauty of holiness. Men from all nations brought to the house of God by his sovereign grace lift up the sacrifice of prayer to his holy name, the name that they love. And in his name, they're going to serve him in his house. God's house of prayer is big and it's diverse and it's happily united in Christ and God wants every one of us to be a part of it. What matters in church is what matters to God. And that is especially bringing in the outsiders and nothing else matters. He doesn't want any man to perish. And you know what? We need to all put this on the top of our prayer list or pretty close. That God will bring back those who have disappeared. And many because of the pandemic. That God will bring those who disappeared back. That he'll he'll bring back our prodigals. The youth. The unchurched. To come to God's house. And to join his household, his family. And when we agree to do that and put it into practice, what's being implied here by Isaiah of God's house being a house of prayer in our churches, then we're moving toward revival. And that's when we'll see revival. The breakthrough to God comes when we choose, and that's it, when we choose to care about those things that God cares about. And nothing else. The psalmist said in Psalm 45, 6 and 7, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. It says, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. You see, we can't love the things that God hates and we can't hate the things that God loves. Our hearts have to be as one with God. We need to love the things that God loves and hate the things that he hates. That's realness. That's genuineness. That's faithfulness. And that's when our prayers will be aligned with the will of God. You know, how can we pray for things that, that when we don't love the things or care about the things that God cares about? Or vice versa. That's reality. That's, that's, again, faithfulness. 
A house of prayer gathering in everyone who will enjoy Jesus Christ with us as our Sabbath rest. He's our Sabbath rest. Verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. God says, I'm going to bring others back to Israel besides my own people. And the Lord's purpose is to bring the Gentiles, the non-Jews, into his kingdom. And the kingdom, his kingdom, is to be worldwide, all-inclusive, without limitation, and will include members of every family of the human race. God says in that day, they are going to go out after people. That's our mission. To preach the gospel to every creature. And now that we've seen this amazing view of the future kingdom, Isaiah now goes back to the messy situation of the kingdom in his day. You see, in verses 1 through 9, he's talking about that, one, that, that future beautiful kingdom when we're all going to be united, we're all going to be there, and those that, that make Jesus Christ their rest. But now in the rest of the verse, he's going back now to what the reality it was of that day, the messy situation the kingdom was in in his day. And we see the same things as we look around us today. Verses 9 through 16 now covers Israel's irresponsible leaders. Look at verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. The watchmen, which are mentioned in, in, in verse 10, the watchmen were the nation's leaders. The leaders of Israel were blind to every danger, so they didn't warn the people when danger was coming. They weren't interested in the needs of their people. They were more concerned about satisfying their own greed. The special privileges of leadership can cause leaders to either sacrifice for the good of their their people or sacrifice their people for their own good. And if you're in a leadership position, you are to use it for the glory of God and the good of your people. The people that you serve. What's pictured here is basically the same thing seen in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 9, where God said, my heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field, bring them to devour. God's going to deal with them. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 17. God just really, you know, notice how many times he says, my And he talks about the irresponsibility of the leaders. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation just for ease of understanding. Then this message came to me, Ezekiel said, from the Lord. Son of man. That was another name that that Ezekiel was called by. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool, and you butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep, 
have been scattered without a shepherd, and they are easy prey for any wild animal. They have wandered through all the mountains and all the hills across the face of the earth, yet no one has gone to search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you abandoned my flock and you left them to be attacked by every wild animal. And though you were my shepherds, you didn't search for my sheep when they were lost. You took care of yourselves and left the sheep to starve. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I now consider these shepherds my enemies and I will hold them responsible for what has happened to my flock. I will take away their right to feed the flock and I will stop them from feeding themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. The sheep will no longer be their prey. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on that dark and cloudy day. I will bring them back home to their own land of Israel from among the peoples and nations. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and by the rivers and in all the places where people live. Yes, I will give them good pasture land on the high hills of Israel. There they will lie down in pleasant places and feed in the lush pastures of the hills. I myself will tend my sheep and give them a place to lie down in peace, says the Sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away and I will bring them safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them, yes, feed them justice. And as for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to His people, I will judge between one animal of the flock and another, separating the sheep from the goats. Pretty powerful warning to those who do not feed God's people who are leaders. Who leave them to be, again, attacked, as He uses the word, attacked by beasts and wild animals. Those who are out there just to rip them off. Those to lead them astray and into false religions. You see, the shepherds and the watchmen who should guard the flock and beware of dangers, they were asleep. They didn't know what was going on. Dangerous wolves, Paul said, will enter the flock and devour it. And this fact is what's prophesied here. They're called beasts of the field and beasts in the forest. God was allowing the nations of the world to come in like wild animals and they were robbing and raiding his people. Assyria had already broken in, had already broken in and Babylon was soon to break in and later uh, others would come steal and destroy. If, you ever, if you've ever seen pictures, closely looked at pictures of the walls of Jerusalem and read anything about it and the Wailing Wall, you can see that they are built out of stones from different periods of civilizations. It's pretty clear that the city has been destroyed repeatedly. History tells us that Jerusalem has been destroyed at least 27 times, and today it's built on debris. You would have to go down. To the, in order to get down to the place where Christ literally walked this earth, you'd have to dig down 30 to 50 feet below the present surface. God allowed nations to come against Israel. Why? Because Israel failed him. I wonder what that says about the United States of America. Verse 10. His watchmen are blind, 
They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, and loving to slumber. The reason why the enemies will enter the fold and destroy the sheep is because Israel's watchmen are asleep. They don't know that the enemy is coming. His watchman here refers to Israel. The prophets who during and after the exile were often unfaithful to the Lord. The result of the blindness, their blindness, is that the watchmen don't know. Not that they don't know anything, but they don't recognize the danger and the approach of the enemy. Who, who, who always comes cunningly, craftily. The watchmen don't understand the nature of the danger. Isaiah isn't talking about physical blindness. He's talking about spiritual blindness. Now the watchmen, they would, they, would, they would stay in these towers that were built on the wall or they'd stand on the wall itself. The wall of the city. And their, 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 their duty was to watch for enemies that were coming in. Or if the word is applied to shepherds here, it was one who kept watch to see that the wild beast didn't come near the flocks. And it's clear from this that, that one part of the prophetical work was to warn the nation of its enemies. To tell of coming danger and, and disaster. But a blind prophet couldn't know the nature of the danger. And the sad thing was, that this condition of blindness applied to all the prophets. And Isaiah uses the word all twice in this verse. Changing the figure of the prophet. Notice what he says here. He compares the prophets here to dogs. In Job 31, it talks about the dog that was kept to bark if wild animals were coming. But Israel's prophets were like dumb dogs, it says here, that couldn't bark. When the enemy was coming, the prophets didn't make any noise. Again, changing the figure to the dogs, they didn't bark. There was no warning. And the words that Isaiah uses here, they are strong words. Not only did they not raise their voice, they couldn't raise their voice because they were overcome with dumbness. And Isaiah gives three reasons for this faithlessness. First, notice what it says there at the, at the, at the, end of the, at the beginning of the, of the verse is that they were sleeping. I'm sorry, at the end of the verse, they were sleeping. They were sleeping. They were dreaming. Instead of honestly declaring the revelations of God, the prophets spent their time dreaming, concerned with their own visions. Or it could mean they were inactive. They weren't doing much of anything. Secondly, at the end of verse 10, it says they were lying down. They were lying down. Instead of being busy and actively carrying out their work. They were sleeping. They were dreaming. They were lying down. And third, it says they loved to slumber. They were concerned about their own enjoyment and comfort in life. Not about the condition of God's people. The whole picture here is one of caring for themselves more than God's people. Caring for their own self-enjoyment and satisfaction and neglecting their duty to watch out for the people. Verse 11. Yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough 
And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Everyone for his own gain from his own territory. Here Isaiah uses the same figures as, as verse 10, but he uses them in a new way. The dogs that he just talked about in verse 10 may not know how to bark, but they're strong. And they're greedy. And their throat. In other words, they can devour everything that they take in. Their appetite is so strong that they, they can't fill, get full. They can't, they can't you know, get filled up. They're, they, just, you know, they can just keep on taking it in. They've never devoured enough to be satisfied. And then the prophet adds, and they're the shepherds. He was talking about the shepherds, the overseers of the flock of God's people that he appointed. And as shepherds, they don't know how to perceive. They don't know how to understand. They don't know how to act with good sense. Because they don't have the spiritual insight to act like shepherds should act. Instead, they're like animals in their understanding and they act like dogs. Isaiah points out the selfishness of Israel's shepherds. He's saying they're only interested in their own way, in their own fulfillment, in their own satisfaction, and, and, it, and, and they're only interested in, in how to prosper themselves. When greed fills the heart of ministers, you can be sure that disaster is going to follow. Because their, use, their usefulness in God's service is done. They're done. Verse 12. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. And tomorrow will be like today and much more abundant. These shepherds, these so-called shepherds, these watchmen. They say, hey, come on. Let's get some wine and have a party. Let's all get drunk. And then we'll do it again tomorrow. And you know what? We'll have even a bigger party. Not only is there indulgence, not only the, the indulgence of the shepherds in, in excess, you know, in, 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 over the top. It's also sensual. Here we have one of the shepherds inviting other shepherds to get drunk and depraved. And the invitation is to total depravity, a total disregard for the good of Israel. And this depravity is to continue. It says, he says, tomorrow will be like today, and you know what? And much more abundant. And these leaders in Isaiah's vision here are toasting to their luck. And they're thinking, oh man, we've never had it so good. But God is calling in their enemies to devour them and they don't even see it. They don't even know it. In closing, like I said, verses 1 through 8 speak of the productiveness of observing the Sabbath. Of doing justice and righteousness. And verse 9 through 12 shows us the destructiveness of feeding the flesh. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20. 
Today I have given you the choice between life and death, God says, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Notice, the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life, God says, so that you and your descendants might live. You make the choice. How? By loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and committing yourself firmly to Him. This is the key to your life. Three times the word choice, and he says you. A lot of times we blame our condition in life on God. God, you dealt me a bad hand. God, you don't love me, or, or whatever it might be that we blame God for. But many times, much of the time, it's based on choices that we have made, poor choices, wrong choices that we have made in life. And that is to not love the Lord with all our whole soul, um, soul, heart, and mind, not to obey Him in all things and commit ourselves to Him. We have wiggle room to do things that, that we want to do for ourselves. But the key to life is loving the Lord, obeying Him, and committing firmly to Him. That's why it's important that we choose carefully. Because as these verses say, it's a matter of life and death. Making the right choices. Choosing the Lord. Father, we come before you and we thank you again for your word, God. We thank you for the wonderful scriptures, Father. And Father, help us to choose life, God. Father, help us to, to, to make that choice to love you, God, with all of our soul, heart, and mind, with all of our strength, God. And Father, to obey you. To obey you, God, in all things. And to commit to you, God, firmly, unwaveringly, God. Again, this is the key to life. And so, Father, we thank you, Father, that you've called us all, every one of us, God. And you've given us your grace. It's available to us, God. But we have to choose life. We have to choose to make Christ our arrest. To place our trust and faith in him. And by choosing to do so, we will live here and for all eternity. So, Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sunday morning.